From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. Nell is out in beautiful New Zealand right now, and so I'll be filling in for her. And our first guest today on the show is Australian biologist and author Daniel Claude, who delves into the extraordinary world of the koala. In vivid descriptive prose, Claude has written a book titled Koala, which is a natural history and uncertain future. I'll look forward to that. And also, uh, we speak with Dr. John Francis, a.k.a. The Planet Walker, in the second part of the show. Dr. Francis is an author and environmental professor, and his environmental work began in 1971 when he witnessed an oil spill in San Francisco Bay. It was then that he gave up the use of motorized vehicles and began to walk everywhere. He then went on to create the nonprofit. Planet Walk, an environmental awareness organization, took a vow of silence for 17 years and received multiple degrees, including a PhD in land resources. Environmental awareness in education, that's what this green earth is all about. Today we have the pleasure of talking with author Daniel Claude, who has written a number of natural history books and essays, and you have done quite a bit of science writing, and recently just penned a book titled Koala, A Life in Trees. Thanks for joining us, Danielle. Thank you, Claire. First, maybe a little bit of a background about yourself and what led you to this topic about this beloved worldwide species. Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting things, I guess, you know, in Australia, we're very familiar with koalas. Well, everybody's really familiar with koalas, um, but not many of us know that much about them. Um, Now, I am a zoologist. Um, You know, that's what I trained in, but I've been a, you know, natural history writer for the last 20 years or so. Um, But when when I came to think about koalas, and I guess... My interest was really prompted by the bushfires in 2019-20 and also one that happened locally near where I live. Um, You know, concern over koalas was really high then. And I realised I actually didn't know that much about them. You know, I didn't didn't know in detail how, how they went, why they were in so much trouble on the east coast of Australia and yet really very abundant where I live on the south coast. So there are a few mysteries there and I thought I'd, you know, check out what was going on. And I was really blown away by how complicated and amazing koalas are. As we envision it, we think that they are widely populated throughout Australia. But can you tell us a little bit more about where they're found and what their habitat looks like? Sure. So koalas are specifically found in the eucalypt forests in Australia. So much of Australia is not forested, um, but the east coast, down the east coast and across the bottom of the south coast is. So that's where we find koalas. So they're, they're widely distributed in the forest, but not elsewhere in Australia. And they're not found in Tasmania either. So um, they're specialists on eucalypts, so they can only live in those forests. Um, now, they're not... Um, when I say they're abundant in my area, I see them from time to time. They're not an everyday thing. So even in an area where there's a lot of them, like the Adelaide Hills, um, they're still infrequently seen uh, because they're very dispersed animals. So you only get, you know, you, one koala needs a really big area of forest to survive. So, you know, one koala needs an area of forest the size of an average sports field. So so there's not that many of them. <laughs> but... Um, 
But for many people on the East Coast, they will never have seen a koala in the wild at all um, because they are in, they're very um, rare there and they're declining. What does that population look like? Has it been altered dramatically throughout the years or, or what are we looking at with that? The reason koalas are so widely distributed is because they eat eucalypt leaves and eucalypt leaves are are quite hard to digest and they're quite toxic. So although koalas eat eucalypts, they only eat certain eucalypts. So they only eat, you know, there's about 900 species of eucalypts um, in Australia. They only eat about 70 species um, and any one koala will only eat between three and 10 species. And they're really, really fussy about which ones they eat. So they'll eat from this tree, but not that tree. They'll eat from it one day, but not the next. They'll eat some of the leaves, but not all of them. So only a koala can tell which leaves are actually nutritious enough and not toxic enough <laughs> for them to consume. So that's why they're so so spaced out. Um, and the biggest impact on koalas, of course, is the, the fragmentation and loss of forests. Like most places in the world, we're losing our forests. We continue to lose them. And, and we've reduced them enormously and broken them up into little patches. So the koalas are now effectively, instead of living in a great sea of forests that they could move through freely, they're living in on little islands of forest. Um, in the middle of habitat that's not very good for them. So, you know, covered, broken up by roads, by housing developments, by farmland and other cleared areas. Are we also seeing climate change uh, as a big factor in their population or is that affecting them? Mm, Yeah, cool. Climate change is a little bit of a you know, <clears throat> has a lot of un- unexpected consequences and it's very hard to predict. So we certainly know that climate change is increasing the frequency and severity of bushfires in Australia. They've increased dramatically. They're happening more often. Um, and they're burning areas that haven't been burnt in millennia. So th- that's a really unusual feature. And that's having a big, that causes a lot of trouble for the for the koalas because they end up with not having anywhere else to go and not being able to repopulate forests once the fires have moved, you know, have gone. Um, It's also possible climate change will will make areas uninhabitable for them because of changes in the toxicity in the leaves, the way the trees react to climate change, and also they're vulnerable to heat waves. So that also causes some problems. Rewinding just a little bit, can you kind of tell us their origins and kind of the beginnings of the the koala? It's called a koala bear. Why is that species even named a bear? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, so koalas, you know, are a member of the marsupials. So they're quite different to the normal northern hemisphere mammals pe- people might be accustomed to. Um, Australia has a great diversity of marsupials. So, you know, that, that's the dominant form of mammal we have from, you know, kangaroos to marsupial moles to little numbats and loads and loads of possums, all of those sorts of things. Um, and, and koalas are an unusual but form of of that but they're they're definitely a marsupial they have they keep their babies in a pouch um and you know they they, so the little tiny jelly bean baby is born crawls into its mother's pouch and then spends another few months there um growing through the size before it emerges at the same rough approximate size that 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 another kind of mammal would normally have give birth so um, that's a very distinctive feature of them 
of course, they're nothing to do with bears at all. <laughs> and the origin of that connection, I mean, you, early when Europeans first explored Australia, they called them sloths and monkeys and all sorts of strange things. They really weren't quite sure what to make of them. I think the bear thing actually comes from later in their in their history. Um, in the early 1800s, uh, they were were killed for fur so there was a really big international fur trade and koalas nearly went extinct in many places because of that hunting for fur and all of that fur was shipped overseas to Europe and America um, and I think probably you know that the fur was also made into children's toys so you know koala bear comes probably from the teddy bear but the Australian version of the teddy bear, and of course those toys are still very popular, fortunately not made from koala fur anymore. <laughs> so so I think that's where the bear connection is because really they're more, koalas are more teddy bear than bears are, I think. <laughs> you know, they're, they're very, they, they sit in that little, that posture, that clinging posture, you know, they've got their arms out, you know, holding onto things. So they're very appealing as a children's um, toy. And, you know, they feature in a lot of children's books. And actually a lot of those children's books started because women in hunting and loss of habitat on koala populations. So they wrote books about koalas for children to try and, get people to care about the fate of the koala. So so that was a really important um, contribution to the conservation campaign and I think raised a whole generation of people who cared about koalas. Um, so so that, that whole history is really interesting, I think, in, in terms of how we've changed our perceptions of koalas and, and actually their popularity now, probably it is really a feature of a conservation movement. As you started to research for this book and understand more and more about this species, what are some of those uh, interesting tidbits that you took away that you didn't know before? Yeah, look, there was an awful lot, to be honest. You know, like most people, I thought koalas were pretty simple and basic. You know, they live in eucalypt trees. They um, sleep 90% of the time. Um, you know, there's not much that's complicated about them. But I realised actually they're incredibly complicated and amazingly adapted to their environment. Um, so I think the understanding their relationship, their really close relationship with eucalypts, the fact that the koalas we have today are the, the last remaining species of a long lineage of different koalas, um, and probably the success of the ones we've got today is due to the fact that they adapted to eat eucalypts in a changing climate when the other trees disappeared. Um, how they've adapted to eat eucalypts when there are so many different species of eucalypts, it's really hard to eat the difference, all the different species or even enough of the different species. And they do that through a remarkably um, uh, interesting gut biome. So, so they have a very specific... Um, collection of bacteria that they cultivate um, in a special part of their digestive system that enables them to eat the eucalypts and break down the leaves. And without that biome, they they do not survive. So um, this is also why it's hard to move koalas from place to place because they have to have a, a localised gut bacteria that allows them to eat the specific leaves. They also have a supercharged liver for removing toxins, which is probably how they manage to eat um, eucalypts when eucalypts typically make most mammals feel really sick if they eat them. 
Um, so all those features. And then, of course, there's all the amazing tree climbing adaptations they have with their really strange hands. They've got two thumbs on their, on their hands, um, so they kind of have a kind of a Vulcan hand shape. <laughs> um, they've got fingerprints like humans, which is they're one of the few animals to have fingerprints outside, individually identifiable fingerprints outside the primates. Um, you know, then they've, they've got these funny, funny little toes, but they've got great big sharp claws because gum trees, eucalypt trees are really, really hard. They're incredibly hard timber. So they have to have unbelievably sharp claws. And when you see a koala climb a tree, you know, most of the time they're pretty chill and relaxed and just sort of wander up. But if they, if they're in a hurry, they fly up those trees. You can hardly even see which bit of them's attached as they go up. It's, it's amazing to watch. So, um, yeah, and, and even though we think they sleep all the time, you know, when you do see them being active, they're, they're quite acrobatic. So, you know, they're very agile and able to leap from tree to tree. And um, it, it's quite, a, they're, they're quite interesting. It's just that we don't, we don't see them very much. You know, they're active at night. Um, and, and we're asleep. They're up the top of a tree, which is hard to see. You get a crick in your neck looking up the trees. Um, so, yeah, there's just so many fascinating things about them. Yeah, and what are some of the biggest takeaways that you would like a reader to get from this writing? I think the thing I really want people to get from from my writing generally uh, and from this book on koalas is is how important it is to try and look at things from the animal's perspective. We we look at things from a very human perspective, but a very primate pers perspective. We are a particular type of animal. We have a monkey brain. We're always running, you know, at a million miles an hour in our head, thinking about things in the past and the future. And, and you know, we need to sort of slow down like a koala um, and just take stock of where we're at and what our environment around us is telling us. Um, and how other animals are interacting with that environment. I think we can learn a lot from taking that more animal-focused perspective, not just to learn how to appreciate other animals better and, and get a better understanding of them, but also to get a better understanding of ourselves and how we need to interact with our world if, if we're going to survive into the future, as well as all these other animals. Yeah, and how would you describe how their presence in these areas affects that environment? As we talk about conservation and if the population depletes, what does that mean? Yeah, well, koalas are obviously significant herbivores and foldivores in the forests, um, and that obviously plays into, you know, uh, uh, plays a significant role in the nutrient cycle in the forest. Eucalypt leaves are notoriously hard to uh, break down, so so they will. You see them on the on a layer on the forest floor, and they survive for years in drought conditions. Um, koalas produce two hundred um, droppings a day, so that's a fairly significant contribution. To, to nutrients and Australia has very poor nutrient poor soils so so I imagine that would be a, a, a quite a major factor um, you know I, th I think you know it, it's it's re always really hard to put I, I think we have a tendency to want to put a value on something um, rather than just having an acceptance of it just having its own merits and its own place in the ecosystem I guess Koalas, in a way, 
I see them as, you know, the canary of the forest rather than the mines. Um, koalas are incredibly robust and resilient species. They, they bounce back from population drops quite remarkably. But if we lose them in an area, that really says that we've done something dramatically wrong. And it's a signifier of a great deal of other problems. Um, and on the other hand, if you protect and have a healthy population of koalas, you're doing something right and you're supporting a whole host of other forest creatures and ecosystems as well. So, so they're a really good indicator species, I think, for, for the health of the environment. Yeah. And uh, what do the conservation efforts look like right now? What are people doing or efforting and, and what are ways in which we can get involved if we wanted to help? Hmm. So there's really big campaigns around caring for individual koalas. So koalas are, are regarded as very special species. They're the, they're the only animals that have their own dedicated koala hospitals and carers. So all the other animals will just get lumped in together. <laughs> but if, you, if a koala needs help, it gets a dedicated um, nurse. And people who look after koalas are really, really dedicated. So, um, so, th so that's one thing. So, that, you know, we get a lot of them cared for after bushfires, um, uh, you know, car accidents. There's teams of people who go out and rescue them, which, which is great. But that's individual care and individual conservation. And while that's important, we really have to think about the, the conservation of the species. Um, and it doesn't matter how many koalas individually you, you save, um, they have to have a forest to go back to. So the most important thing we can do for koalas is protect their habitat um, and make sure it's not cut down. And that includes, you know, the gum tree that grows in the suburb um, next to your house, um, if you're in Australia, or it, or it includes wildlife areas. Um, so there's a lot of campaigns around protecting habitat and people can contribute to those. And I, I just, koalas, attract a lot of funding from overseas, which is wonderful, but I really think it would be helpful to divert that into habitat protection. So the organisations that actually look after habitat, kept, keep out the feral predators, do all the weeding, um, all that hard, hard, boring work <laughs> that needs to be done to keep our ecosystems healthy, they're the ones I think could do with the help. Do you have numbers on the population and uh, maybe the changes that it's undergone over the years? Yeah, koala populations are really hard to count because they are so dispersed um, and hard to see. So, you know, it takes a lot of effort to survey them. Um, but we definitely, def what we do know is that they are declining dramatically um, on the East Coast. Um, and I think the worrying, one of the worrying things that came out of the bushfires was is not, is, is how qu quickly a, a significant population can be lost. So one of the interesting things is that on some of the islands that were established as koala refuges, so Kangaroo Island near me um, was established in the 1930s as a refuge for koalas. Uh, and it had a really huge thriving population, one of the biggest populations in Australia. And when a fire burnt through there a couple of years ago, it burnt out the entire national park and we lost up to 40,000 koalas died in that fire, which is a huge proportion of the overall population. So that's one refuge population that just has been decimated. Um, there's still about 8,000 left, so they'll recover. 
but that just goes to show how quickly and easily a population can disappear in one event, you know, an event that just happened over the course of a month. And do you feel like your writing is is a bit of a love letter uh, as well as an information dispeller? Yeah, yeah. My writing is, uh, yeah, I definitely don't write straight information books. Um, I, I generally tend to write stories. Um, they're still completely non, well, they're, they're nonfiction and they have a lot of information in them. But um, I just always like to take my reader on a journey with me, on a, on a journey of discovery. And I think really... I always fall in love with the subjects of my books, whether I'm writing about orcas or or French explorers or women naturalists. (laughs) There's always a a tendency to to just become really passionate about about the subject. Um, So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me that that comes across in in Koala as well. I've certainly gained a great deal more um, appreciation for them as a species. And is there anything else that you would want listeners to know about the book or the species itself? The one, the one thing I would say is that um, Americans have had a huge um, input into koala conservation, um, which is, is a really important thing to acknowledge. Um, you know, it was uh, an American president who banned koala hunting, uh, banned the importation of fur and stopped the hunting of koalas in Australia so save them, really save them, I think, um, in, in the 1920s. Um, and American conservation efforts continue to be really important. When animals are kept in zoos, endangered animals are kept in American zoos, funding has to be transferred from those zoos to in situ conservation. So American zoos fund a lot of koala conservation. And, of course, the, the surge of affection and concern for koalas during the bushfires was quite unprecedented. I don't think anybody expected that. It was, it was enormous. So those contributions make a really big difference. Um, and it's worth doing a little bit of research, you know, just to make sure that you're contributing to, um, you know, some re- there are some really great programs and people do some amazing things. But keep an eye out for the smaller ones. I I think, um, and make sure you're spreading that money around. Well, uh, as we wrap up here, is there a website or a place that you can tell our listeners where they can find more information about you and where they can uh, get a copy of Koala? Sure. So um, Koala is being published in the US by W.W. Norton. So it'll be available in print form in all of your local bookstores, which I strongly encourage you to support, or it should be in your local libraries. Um, You can find out more about my books at um, my website, daniellecloud.com.au. Don't forget the AU on the end. And yeah, it's also available in audiobook and ebook form. It is narrated by an Australian actor, so um, yeah, (laughs) it has the right accent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Danielle, I really appreciate you coming on This Green Earth. In reading your book, we can maybe find uh, even a greater love for the koala. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Claire. It's been a great pleasure. And joining us for the second part of this show is Professor John Francis. He is the author, among other things, he's the author of the book Planet Walker, 17 Years of Silence, 22 Years of Walking, and also the author of a new children's book 
titled Human Kindness, True Stories of Compassion and Generosity That Changed the World. Uh, John Francis, thank you so much for joining Nell and myself on This Green Earth this morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, let's, as we like to do, let's start at the beginning. It's <laughs> 1971, you're 26 or 27. We, we, we talked about in the intro, an, an oil spill kind of changed your life, but what were you doing with your life before this oil spill? Well, I was actually a, 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 a band manager for a um, avant-garde uh, jazz group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, just kind of uh, living the life in California, um, trying to uh, look for that, the revolution, the cultural revolution that was supposed to be happening and mm -hmm. uh, that kind of fizzled out there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but in its place, unfortunately, there is an oil spill, a tanker, collision or so, oil spill. You go out, as I understand, to help clean up this mess as best you can. And what comes of that? Well, I, you know, I, I first, I just went out with my, my girlfriend. We wanted to look and see at uh, uh, a spill. So we drove from our little town, uh, the 40 miles to San Francisco and and across the Golden Gate Bridge. And thankfully it was all fogged in. So we really couldn't see it. And so we drove across the city and we're on our way back and we're going past where the spill, people are, you know, rushing out to uh, save birds and things. And, and uh, someone on the, the radio, it's a radio is a big thing back then. And uh, someone on the radio says, Look, John, it still is. Okay. <laughs> just, just Cute. work with us. Sorry. <laughs> I, I believe you. <laughs> For me, it, it is. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Now that I'm speaking, it's very big. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, and and so uh, you know, uh, an announcer says, "Look, if you if you don't like the news, go out and make your own." And I thought, "Hmm, that's kind of a challenge." <laughs> and uh, we drove back to our little town, and and I couldn't figure out what it was I was going to do to really help the oil spill uh, to 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 mitigate that. And I said to my girlfriend, "I said maybe we should just give up riding in cars." And she kind of laughed at me and said, "That's." That's really sweet of you, John. You're <laughs> so naive. It's kind of why I like you. And uh, it wasn't <laughs> very much after that that uh, a friend's death convinced me uh, that, you know, you only have this moment to do the things that you say you want to do. Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee that tomorrow's going to come. There's no guarantee that you know, you're going to win the lottery or the money's going to come so that you can afford to do the things that you feel you need to do. And so uh, on that day that my friend passed away in, in a boating accident, hmm. actually on Tamales Bay, it's a little bay mm -hmm. uh, near where I live, uh, my girlfriend and I decided we were going to walk to uh, the next big town, which was San Anselmo, about 20 miles away, to dance uh, in his honor. And uh, we got there. It took us <laughs> all day to get there. Right. Uh, and uh, <laughs> once we got there, they were just about 
over. They were singing the last song and it was uh, the young bloods who lived in our town and they were singing, come on people, smile on your brother. Oh, wow. Everybody get together, you know, that this yes. song, mm -hmm. get together. And uh, uh, they said, yeah, John, Gene, you guys just walked all the way. And we said, yeah, yeah. And they said, well, we'll, we'll drive you back home. And we decided, no, we would walk back. And, and on that walk the next day, um, is when I realized that, you know, if I was going to do anything, I was going to do it now because my friend who passed away was my age. He was about 26 and, uh, you know, had a, was a deputy sheriff. He had a, a, a wife, a family and a house with a white picket fence around it. You mm. know, it was like the American dream. Right. Mm. And, and, uh, and he was white. And that should tell you that I'm African American, right? Black. So he had he had everything, and just like that, he was gone. And it made, and it made me think, like, wow, John, tomorrow you might not be here. So, mm -hmm. what 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 are you going to do? And I said, you know, I'm going to keep walking. Mm. Uh, and that's what happened. I just kept walking. Yeah. And. Okay, so you walk everywhere, uh, and obviously you have to at times try to explain yourself why you're oh, doing yeah. this, and I'm sure you get you get people again who think you're naive, and and that's that's kind of uh, oh that's kind of a nice idea, but it's not going to amount to anything, and so eventually you get kind of fed up. With these conversations, so to speak. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm always arguing about you yeah. know what it is I'm doing, and I think that you know I say you know one person walking can make a difference, and that's the kind of oh John, you're really crazy guy. <laughs> that's not how life works, and you're just gonna end up walking, and that means more gas for us. <laughs> oh well, that's. Probably true. I, I I just didn't know. Uh, and I said, I'm going to just shut up one day on my birthday. I was turning 27, and I thought, uh, you know, uh, I've been reading a, a lot of books of, on Eastern philosophy, and I uh, learned about Maher Baba, who didn't speak for uh, 40 years. And I said, well, I'm, I can't do that, but I can do it for one day. And uh, so I did. I, I shut up for one day. And um, that was just so enlightening to me. It was like going through a door because I, I learned that um, I had not really been listening. Um, mm. What I would do would just listen uh, enough to think that I, was, I understood or knew what the other person was going to say. And then I would stop listening and start thinking in my own mind mm. what I was going to say back to them. <laughs> to show them that they were wrong, I knew the right answer, and even if what they were gonna say was what I believe, um, I could say it better. Hmm. And uh, so um, that one day taught me that, you know, John, um, you've been listening shallowly, very, hmm. you know, for a long time, and you have stopped learning. <laughs> because, if you think you know everything, <laughs> anything that's different, you don't want to hear it, sure. then you're not going to learn anything new, obviously. 
And so I said, huh, maybe I should be quiet another day. And that went on. <laughs> and, and I'm, God, I was learning so much about myself, about the people I lived around, my friends and my neighbors. I, I, th- I, I, th- I better do this for a week. And uh, eventually, I, I, you know, I ended up not speaking. I said, well, I'm going to do it for a year. And if everything is still the same way, I'll ask myself and uh, I'll renew the vow or I'll start speaking. Well, I, I didn't start speaking for 17 years. Oh, wow. I, I know. I know that. No, this is an environmental show, and John, we're going to get to your environmental work in a minute. But this, thank you. We've got, I, but I, I just gotta, I've, I've got to get a sense of what it's. I don't know how to, you know, describe as best you can in words what it's like to be silent for seventeen years and be kind of a sponge in a sense. You're just absorbing information. Wasn't there times where you just wanted to offer your opinion or thoughts or feedback? Wow. Thankfully, I had a banjo. Okay. (laughs) There we go. Music. Music. music, The role of music. Okay. Yeah. And uh, music was a really good thing, you know, that's so about music uh, assuaging the the savage beast. Uh, I think it's a a true um, saying. But um, I listened to a lot of people, and I just felt that listening um, was uh, the way to really learn about people. But not only people, but my environment, because you say this is an environmental show. And I was walking all this time Mm -hmm. and listening to my physical environment and the people around me. And uh, it it was uh, life altering, life-changing, and uh, eventually uh, I ended up walking across the United States, and I would stop and go to school uh, without speaking, and I went to school in Oregon for my undergraduate degree, a, a uh, bachelor's in science, and, and then I went to, uh, I returned to the Bay Area to, to learn how to build wooden boats and uh, found the, my organization called Planet Walk, which is a nonprofit environmental education organization. And then I took off walking around the world and uh, up to Montana, well, up to Port Townsend, Washington, where I built my first boat and rode that across Puget Sound to uh, Bainbridge Island and then oh, wow. walked across... Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and all, all the way to Montana, I did a master's degree in environmental studies without speaking. And <laughs> I, I, I wrote on uh, a professional paper. It was War, Peace, and the Environment uh, Pilgrimage uh, and Pilgrimage of, and Change. War, Peace, and Environment, Pilgrimage and Change, mm. War, Peace, and Environment. And, and then on to uh, uh, South Dakota, I worked as a printer, and then to Madison, Wisconsin. And I was a fellow at the University of Wisconsin's uh, Gaylord Nelson's mm-hmm. uh, Institute for Environmental Study, where, where i still not talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, studied for my Ph.D., 
and all the way to the East Coast, uh, uh, where I started speaking again on the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, uh, because what environment meant to me had absolutely changed from being about pollution and loss of species and habitat and climate change to be including people because, oh my God, can you imagine how many people I ran into walking across America, you know? And they were all different, you know? I mean, I went through blue states, purple states, uh, yellow, green, whatever color state you could imagine to get to the East Coast and start talking. And I realized, oh my gosh, people are really part of the environment. Hmm. And like, because of that, our first opportunity to treat the environment in a sustainable way, or even understand what we mean by sustainability, that was the mm. new word, sustainability, <laughs> was how we treat each other. Right. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. It was like, you know, if, if we oppress each other, if we exploit each other, being part of the environment, that's going to manifest in the physical environment around us. You know, so environment to me became about human rights and civil rights and gender equality and economic equity and all the ways that us humans relate to one another. Well, uh, kind of coming full circle, you eventually got work with the federal government, I believe working with the U.S. Coast Guard or helped write the yeah. U.S. Coast Guard Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Correct, yes. I, I helped, you know, it was just amazing because uh, when I was in Wisconsin studying for my PhD, I was already writing on oil spills because that was really what got me started in the environmental movement. And I was getting published already. And so the Coast Guard uh, reached out to me and called up and you know, asked to speak to me and, and you know, they had to say, well, uh, you know, yeah, John Francis, he's here, but he doesn't speak. He, he does. He gave up speaking and so practicing a vow of silence. And they said, well, we just wanted him to come out to Washington, D.C. and help us write these regulations. They said, well, I'm, I'm sure he would be happy to do that. But, you know, he doesn't ride in cars, so he'd be walking. <laughs> And it's just, God, is there somebody normal at your university? <laughs> you know, and uh, eventually I... I well, you know, eventually they, you showed up first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they talked to my major professor who tried to explain everything, did explain everything to him. And uh, uh, when I started speaking, they reached out to me again. And, uh, and so I, I eventually got to Washington and worked at uh, Coast Guard headquarters um, writing oil pollution regulations. And it was a, uh, just an amazing time for me. I, I still didn't ride in cars, but I, uh, I, I didn't, I did talk, which was a very helpful well, for them. I, I like the, I like the <laughs> fact that you, uh, broke your vow of silence on Earth Day, which I think, uh, Senator Nelson, Gaylor Nelson was pivotal and helping to establish, yes. right. So yes. that's that connection there. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of connections with Wisconsin and the Institute for Environmental Studies there. Uh, and one of them was, of course, uh, Gaylord Nelson. And 
Uh, I am emeritus now as a, a professor and a board of visitors uh, for the Nelson Institute. And so I got to learn a lot about Gaylord and uh, I know his family and Tia, his daughter who's still there. And, uh, but there was also another famous person in the environment that studied at Wisconsin. And that was John Muir, (laughs) John Muir. And I'm I'm sure he was considered crazy too. He walked from Florida to Wisconsin (laughs) to go to school (laughs) there. (laughs) It's like, I go, oh, yeah, I guess there are all these similarities, huh? Interesting. Well, we've got, well, we got another six or seven minutes. A lot more to cover. Uh, We haven't touched on your uh the book planet walk but i do want to jump into the the children's book you just uh published uh human kindness true stories of compassion and generosity that changed the world what was the the impetus behind writing that well you know it was a, a good friend of mine who is a publisher christopher lloyd um we spent a lot of time sailing on a boat Uh, out uh, from the UK to the Grand Canary Islands as part of a a recreation of uh, 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 Charles Darwin's trip around the world. And and we became really good friends and he uh, got in touch with me and he said, John, would you write a book on kindness, a children's book on (laughs) kindness? (laughs) I said, Chris, what a great idea. Absolutely. And so it just happened just before uh, COVID. And so I spent um, my time at home in uh, writing this book and uh, being able to research so many different things about kindness through the University of Wisconsin, their library. I could write, they would send me the books, I could send them back. And it was just an amazing time. And and here I am being able to get up every morning and such a practice, I keep keep practicing it and think about kindness, Mm. you know? So so it was a a, a wonderful, uh, you know, juxtaposition of a lot of events there. Oh, and so that book is available? Um, it, it, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yes, it was. Uh, it was uh, published uh, here in the United States, um, September six, and you know you can get it at your uh, local bookstore or Amazon or you know online at any of the booksellers. All right. Now the uh, next thing is uh, you're you're not done walking, if I understand correctly. You are actually planning a 4,000-mile walk from South Africa to, I think it's uh, Ethiopia, uh, uh, this coming spring. Yeah, I am looking at the uh, logistics involved in that walk. Um, I'm a a National Geographic explorer. That uh, happened as I walked, after I walked across the United States, I became not only a UN Goodwill Ambassador, uh, and after I walked and I walked the length of South America with as a UN Goodwill Ambassador and some of Cuba. But uh, as a National Geographic Explorer, uh, my hope is to 
uh, walk starting at Cape Town, walking north uh, through uh, the Rift Valley to join all the other National Geographic explorers that mm. are doing work and had them come and, and walk with me and for me to go visit their work sites where they are working and all the way the length of Africa, you know, and, and that's my dream walk right now. How do, uh, how do Nell and I join in? <laughs> yes. Seriously. <laughs> well, Is it possible? Um, it's possible. But the first thing, I just returned from Tanzania, uh, which was the birthplace of humankind in the sense that it's where we first stood up on two legs and started walking. So as mm, the planet uh... walker, going to Tanzania to where we began walking on this journey, this humankind journey, um, was really important. And we are doing two walks uh, in Tanzania, uh, which are fundraising for the larger walk starting in Cape Town. And those two walks begin in, uh, in, in February of next year. Uh, but, you know, people who are interested can get a hold of me and we can tell them all about the walks in, in Tanzania and uh, they're going to help come up with the route and the mindset of the walk uh, from Cape Town north as well. I mean, being a planet walker, this is called not only Planet Walk Africa, but Planet Walk World. We want planet walkers to be all over the world to to walk uh, with the spirit of kindness and generosity and to listen and learn not that we're going to tell you how to do things but i tell people just walk and listen listen to people's stories let and listen to nature hey. not for nothing right <laughs> yes right that's exactly right and and uh, last last couple of minutes, uh, if I understand, you live in the Cape May area right now? I live in Cape May, New Jersey. Yes, yeah. I, I, I'm born and raised in South Jersey, in Vineland, and uh, was in Cape May last October. Oh, uh, my goodness. I love it. So you, you're, you're a Jersey boy. Uh, <laughs> Can't you hear it in his voice? Well, the... you, could, you could take a vow of silence on that, John. Thank you. Uh, yes. Um, so I know where you live. I want to visit. <laughs> I want to visit you. So I'm, so uh, seriously, I want to look into joining this walk in Tanzania. This is yeah. so fascinating. Uh, so many more questions, but we got to wrap up. How do people learn more about Planet Walk, your organization, your books, and this trip? Well, um, you can learn about Planet Walk by uh, looking at our website, which is. Uh, planetwalk.org, www.planetwalk.org. Uh, you can contact me at john at planetwalk.org. Uh, and uh, we are on the website of uh, 1% for the environment, mm. Mm. Uh, for the planet. That's mm -hmm. it. 1% for the planet. Excuse me. I get to, yeah. Okay. So all of those. All right. Uh, and lastly, you know what, John? This would be perfect irony. You should have your own radio show. 
You have so much to say now. Uh, check out the Cape May NPR affiliate. Uh, do that. That's what Nell and I did. <laughs> they gave us a show. Cape so, May White. Yes, yeah, sir. That's right. John Francis, he is a professor uh, uh, of, of environmental studies, uh, emeritus, and uh, also the author of two books, among other things, Planet Walker, 17 Years of Silence, 22 Years of Walking, and the new children's book titled Human Kindness, True Stories of Compassion and Generosity That Changed the World. John, thank you so much for joining us and speaking with us on This Green oh. Earth. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. We will be in. We will stay Absolutely. in touch. Absolutely.